us pray. Gracious God, we come to you thankful that we are able to worship you in spirit and in truth. Seeing the great praises of our faith, the great hymns of our faith that have passed down from one generation to the next. The robust understanding of who we are first and foremost in and through you, our Savior and Lord. As we continue to worship you through the hearing of your word, the teaching of your word in this sermon town, we pray that we as your servants would be listening, that we as your servants would hear you speak directly to us through the power of the Holy Spirit in and through your word. It's in your name, the saving name of Christ that we pray this all. Amen. As you are having a seat, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 this morning. James 5, verses 13 through 15 this morning. If you're new to Dawson, we are walking through James' epistle, and we're coming to the conclusion of this letter that we know is the book of James. Uh, Danielle and I were comparing notes last night. She has an a note on her phone of all of the things that the she's kind of collected that the boys have said. You know, just funny sayings that you just say, I wish I could remember that. She's got a, a little note on her phone, so we were looking through some of those things. And it made me think about some of the things that I've most often heard our boys say. Now, this is not necessarily what they're saying now, but at 12, 10, and 6, there there's certain phrases that just our kids have repeated often, and the top five list of that has to be, I can do it by myself. I can do it by myself. Now, if you're a parent of children, whether they be two or four or six or eight, sometime in that little uh, range of ages, you will hear your children say, I can do it by myself. You're putting them into the car seat and you're buckling things and they look at you with this exasperation and they say, I can do it by myself. You're getting at the end of a day and they're hot and sweaty and you take them into the bathroom and you're helping them get the shampoo on their hair and then at some place as they're growing up, they look at you and they say, I can do it by myself. You're helping them even this morning. Maybe some of you had these button-up shirts that you're putting on your boys and you're helping them get the, the bottom button to the bottom hole and you're making your way up the terrain of that first uh, shirt there that they're putting on and, and they look at you and they say, I can do it by myself. And there's a sense in which we want our children to say that. We want our children to have independence. We want them to learn responsibility. We don't want to helicopter parent them in such a way that they lose the ability to do what they need to do for themselves. It's a part of growing up, even at young ages, that they start doing things by themselves. There's also a sense in which at the age of two and three and four and five that there is a, a cultural stream that they're exposing you to, which is this sense of independence, this sense of I want to be my own and I don't need you. Where the pronouns are I and me and my and mine and they're not a lot of we and us's in the vocabulary. There's an American cultural stream that exalts 
I. It's an American cultural stream that says, I can do it by myself. I can pick myself up from my bootstraps and I don't need a community. James is landing the plane of his letter. And we get to James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, that the pronouns are going to shift to we and to our and to us. You need this community. We need one another. That there is a sense in which that we as Christians are called to a life together, and there's much in the Christian life that you cannot do by yourself. James would tell us in verses 13 through 20 of James chapter 5 that we need one another to pray for us, to know us, and to restore us. It's a three-point sermon that should land the plane of this series in the book of James, but somewhere Wednesday at about 10 or 11 as I was working through this sermon, this one point of a three-point sermon became the point of just this sermon. It was almost as if the first point was saying to me, I can do this by myself. And I had to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And, and, so, and you'll see as, as we look at these passages just how much it demands our focus and our attention and how much can be misunderstood from verses 13, 14, and 15. Read with me in your copy of God's Word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James chapter 5, you need to understand the structure here. He is bringing us full circle. He is connecting some dots between the way he started the book and the way he's going to end the book. In James chapter 1 verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Count it pure joy, James says, when you face trials. Now he comes back to that theme in James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, we know it's a rhetorical question. We know now, as we've journeyed through the book of James, yes, there's suffering that's occurring. There's economic injustice. There's judicial injustice. We've looked in James chapter 5 how wealthy non-Christians have oppressed the faithful, predominantly poverty-stricken Christians of James's day. So yes, there is suffering. What do you do when you suffer? James says, if you're suffering, go to your knees in prayer. But all of life isn't a journey through the valleys. All of life isn't full of the meteorological patterns of thunderstorms that come over your emotions and your physical life. There are some times where you're cheerful. So James on the flip side says, is anyone among you cheerful? Well, what do we do? Let him sing praise. There's this great invitation. I hope you know this. I know you do know this, that one of the distinctions of the Christian faith is that we are a singing people. That when our cup overflows, prose alone isn't sufficient. 
That there are times in the joy of our Christian life and even in the times of the difficulty of our Christian life that what comes to our heart first and foremost are not sermon notes from years ago but the great hymns of the faith and the great praise songs of now that sustain us and give us a vocabulary of truth that we must utter back to him in gratitude. So if anyone among you is cheerful, let him sing. I love what Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, pastor, teacher, he opposed the, the rise of Hitler's regime and he created a seminary that opposed the, the state national church of Germany. And in the midst of his seminary, one of the unique things that he did is he gathered these men together. And at the beginning of the day, they, they sung together. And at the conclusion of the day, they sung together. This is what Bonhoeffer says in his book called Life Together. Music will help dissolve your perplexities and purify your character and sensibilities. And in time of care and sorrow will, and underline this, write this, will keep a fountain of joy alive in you. The power of song, the power of music as your faith deepens on your journey. So James comes to this conclusion and he says, if you're suffering, pray. If you're joy-filled, sing. And then he moves to the hour, to the we, to the us. You can sing alone, you can pray alone, but you can't do this when you're sick alone. So when you're sick, you call the elders of the church to pray over you, James says. This moves us to our emphasis. We need one another to pray for us. Notice the power of intercession. The power that God has ordained when men and women, friends and church members that come alongside of you in the midst of your illness intercede for you. God has ordained this as a way that brings healing in your life and in my life, I want you to see the process of healing, and I want you to see the promise of healing intercession this morning. The process and the promise. Now, they are perplexities that can arise with a passage like this that make you miss a promise that is here and a process that is here. And we want to deal honestly with the questions that emerged when I first read this passage out loud. I have questions about this passage. You have questions about this passage. But in the midst of our question marks, there are some declarative truths that you see. And first is a process of healing intercession. Who is, who is doing the praying in this passage here? We'll call the elders to pray, James says. Elders used 66 times in the New Testament. We see elders appointed in Acts 11, Acts 15. Acts 15, we have five references to elders. Acts 21, Paul is writing to his protege in the ministry named Timothy. Timothy chapter 5, we have requirements for elders. We have Titus and elders there. So Paul is an itinerant evangelist, missionary. He, he sets up in this apostolic church planning movement that we know to be the first century. He sets up churches, and one of the first things that he does, he's not going to be the pastor of these churches, but he appoints elders to these churches. And in that first century world, those elders were spiritually mature men who were appointed for the purpose of guiding the congregation by guarding them, 
feeding them and leading them through prayer and the word. So Paul, excuse me, James says that call the elders when you're sick. Notice not only who, but notice how in this passage. Notice that it says pray over him. This sick person we're called, these elders are called to pray over the person that is sick. The preposition over shows up one time in the New Testament after prayer. This seems to be significant because it helps us get a picture of the person that is sick. This is not a person with a toothache or a headache. This is not a person with just a common cold here. This is a person who is immobile. This is a person, to get a better picture of what's occurring here, this is a person where the family is gathered around and that person, it seems, is vacillating between life and death and they wonder if this person will ever rise up again and walk uh, with them without any sickness again. It's important. The elders are called. They're praying over this person here. They anoint him with oil, it says. Before we start thinking about the anointing of oil, I want you to see this portrait and how far removed it is from what is often healing ministries in the 20th and 21st century. There's so many of us that don't want to talk about healing because we see so much misappropriation of it on television. There's nothing in the book of James that has this big auditorium being rented out and the bombastic nature of everyone coming up and everyone being promised that they're going to be healed on the spot. That's not what James is talking about. There's nothing here in James that says, if you would only believe, and for 1995, if you would give over six easy installments, you would receive a prayer cloth and you could be assured of healing. There's none of that here. Of course, there's misappropriation. Of course, there is fraudulent claims of healing that has occurred is occurring and will continue to occur until the Lord comes back. But even with those false witnesses, let us not discount that our God is sovereign and he is powerful. And if he so sees fit, he certainly can heal in any way that he desires to heal. So we see who, how, that comes to this portion of the anointing a person with oil, what, what is going on there? there? There are three interpretations of the use of oil. I want to just give it to you really quickly here. The first is a medicinal interpretation. You remember the Good Samaritan as he's happening on this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. He sees a person that's been beaten and battered and left, by, left dead on the side of the road by these bandits. And he comes alongside of him. He stops. He stoops. He picks him up. And what does the passage tell us? Well... He bandages his wounds, and he anoints him with oil and also wine as a way to disinfect the wounds. So there's a medicinal use. Outside of the New Testament, you have many examples of oil being used to cure toothaches and paralysis. I mean, oil was used in a medicinal way in the first century. So it very well may be, we don't know this for sure, very well may be that the elders had access to this in a way that would have been different than those first century believers, and they are using the oil in a medicinal way. Medicinal is that first interpretation. The second interpretation is a symbolic interpretation. What do I mean by that? 
Well, Jesus, in his ministry, he calls the 12, then he calls the 72. He sends the 72 out, and in Mark chapter 6, they're sent out to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, and to anoint the sick with what? With oil. In the Old Testament, oil was used to be this, this consecration of God's leaders. It is not the oil that heals, but it was this symbolic way that one is saying that we are focusing our attention upon this person as Samuel anoints Saul with oil as he is going to be the king of Israel. So there is a special way that it represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. The oil is not doing the healing, only God does. But there's a way in which the oil is this intensification of focus, symbolic, medicinal, and finally sacramental. In, in, the, in the broader body of Christ, and there are brothers and sisters that see this passage as an invitation to what is called extreme unction where when a person is at their deathbed, there should be a priest who comes to administer the extreme unctions, the last rites, and the oil is placed upon them, and there is a removal of sin that is guaranteed, and there is a, a promise of hope in the midst of bringing one from this life to the next life. Now, let's think about this carefully. It seems that James could mean medicinal. He could mean symbolic. I'm not sure that there's warrant for the sacramental understanding. So what does this mean for your life and my life? Well, it means something about how we understand healing. There's certain segments of the Christian faith that say if you truly have faith in God, you don't need to go to the doctor, you don't need that scan, you don't need that consultation. If you just believed, then God would heal you. There, there are some strands of the Christian church that actually discourage people from receiving the, the knowledge of trained professionals. Well, James reminds us that medicinal and symbolic could go together, so your prayers for healing and prescriptions can go together. Your meditation upon the Lord and also medicine can go together, and they should never be separated. All healing comes from God, and praise God that we live in the 21st century with wonderful women and men who are doctors, wonderful medicine that is available to us, the technology that is available to us, and so we need not be hesitant to, to not only pray, but also to seek wise counsel that is by human physicians. We need not put these in separate planes. But there's also a sense in which we do not often talk about the anointing of all and God's healing when prescriptions get you to a place, but they, they come up against a wall that they cannot climb over. A doctor's treatment can come up to a wall and, and they can't get you over. And there is a sense where all of you in this room maybe have stories of God's miraculous healing. Just this last week I was with someone. It's interesting how you preach a passage and it's like a magnetic attraction throughout the week of people that are telling stories. And it's like, that story is for the sermon. And she was telling me the story of how at the age of 39, 
There was a terminal diagnosis that was placed upon her, and there really was no hope. She had young children, but God, in her understanding over the course of years, in spite of what was that terminal diagnosis, healed her. And she is telling me that story 51 years later. Praise God. And we should say amen to those stories. That story is not a guarantee that he always does that for your story, but he certainly does. And you could tell stories of that, maybe even in small ways that God has intervened in ways that are beyond diagnosis and beyond your understanding. Just this last week, I was with one of the professors at Beeson Divinity School, one of the foremost theologians in North America, Dr. Gerald McDermott, who had been in Nigeria training Anglican pastors. And there's tremendous persecution in Nigeria focused upon Christians in that country. And so he happened, as he was training, he happened upon a terrorist attack that was targeting Christians of the area. They flee into the police station, and there are those, and he is right in the middle of it, and there are those who are injured who begin to flee in to the police station. These Christian clerics from the Anglican church, Dr. McDermott, along with other faithful believers, pray, and they ask, can we anoint you with oil, and can we pray for your healing? All of the people, the men, the women, and the children that were harmed, they were all adherents of Islam. But God gave them the opportunity to pray, even in my own ministry. It's not something that I I do in a cavalier way. But even in my own practice as a pastor for the last 17 years, that when a person requests that they be anointed with oil and prayed for in healing, I have granted that request without any, any hesitations. So in people's homes, I have utilized James chapter 5 as a God. In hospital rooms, have utilized James chapter 5 as a glad. I don't walk into the hospital with just a canister of oil and start you know, flinging it out willy-nilly. I mean, that's not what this passage is talking about. But in the privacy, the request of the believer. So this is something that is a part of the fabric of our Christian life, although we don't talk about it often. Notice the process of healing intercession. But notice the promise. And this is where your questions are, aren't they? The, the questions are right here at verse 15. This is, this is why we have to have a sermon that's just one sermon on this because you read verse 15. I read it in the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, we can just take a deep breath there. I mean, this passage has a multitude of potential questions that you would have in real life implications of how you would answer these questions. It very well may be that you heard this message and you thought to yourself, does faith-filled prayer always guarantee earthly healing? You might have asked, behind every sickness, is there sinfulness? You might have asked, looking at this passage, what happens when we pray but the Lord doesn't raise up our loved one? You might have asked, looking at this passage, what does it even mean to be raised up? 
Every question can't be adequately addressed in this sermon, but we want to address as much of it as we can because there are real life faith implications for how you answer this question. And you can go out of the boundaries of Christian orthodoxy, and it could be really harmful to your own experience of walking with the Lord based upon how you answer these questions. So let's take up the relationship between sin and sickness. Behind every sickness is James saying, It is a result of sin? And the answer is no. Look again in your copy of God's word in verse 15. It says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice that conditional word, I-F, if. Notice that James is saying, circle it, put an asterisk about it. He's not saying behind every sickness there is sin. The witness of scripture tells us this. Job, in the midst of the plight that he experienced, he has bulls that raise up on his body, and it's not because of unconfessed sin. We can think of Jesus ministering to the man that is born blind, and you remember they come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? They want to make a direct correlation between sickness, ailment, and sinfulness. And what does Jesus respond in John chapter 9, verse 2? He says, it was not. That this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. Behind every ailment and every diagnosis isn't unconfessed sin. I think this is important. Because there can be a weight that is unduly placed upon people when they think that a disease is a direct correlation between a life of unfaithfulness. Now, yes, there are physical consequences for our sin. There's no denying that. Spiritually, the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of your sins, covers all of my sins. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. But yes, there are times where we reap what we sow. Yes, poor dietary habits over decades could have physical implications. We all know that. But that's not what James is talking about here. Behind every sickness isn't unconfessed sin. Behind every ailment isn't sinfulness. Now, we come back to this passage knowing that we don't live in the Garden of Eden, knowing that sickness and disease is a result of the fallen humanity that we live in. And then we ask, what does it mean to pray in faith that God will raise our sick friends, brothers, sisters, mom, and dad, raise them up? Well, James is talking about physical healing here. He's talking about physically raising one up. They're they're immobile and they're walking in our midst. Well, then we better ask and answer very carefully, well, what is he talking about? Pray in faith. Does this mean that if you have enough faith that God has to answer your prayer and heal your loved one here on earth? And if you only had enough faith that he would always guarantee earthly healing? I think the answer is no. Again, I told you at the beginning of the sermon that James is coming back to themes. Is any of you suffering? Pray. He comes back to a theme, the prayer of faith. You know where else he's talked about that? Well, he talked about it in verse 5 of James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, do you remember what he told us to do? Let him ask in faith. What does it mean to ask in faith? With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. 
trusting. The prayer of faith is trusting that God hears our request and he will answer our prayer. There is no guarantee that he has to answer your prayer or my prayer in the way that we think best. The prayer of faith is not the intensity of your belief. It isn't just believe more. Just believe a little bit more. Just believe a little bit more, and then you will have enough faith for whatever you ask for to be granted to you. Rather, the prayer of faith is focused on the object of our faith. Who is the object of our faith? Jesus Christ. I love the way that James ties this together. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice what James is doing here. He's talking about physical healing and spiritual healing. While God does not promise earthly healing to all of us, he does promise to all of us who turn to him in faith spiritual healing. He promises to all of us who would turn to him spiritual healing from our sins This is important. Why? Because if you haven't, you will be in that ICU. If you haven't, you will be in that ER. If you haven't, you will be upon that wreck scene. And you will hold the hand of a coworker. You will hold the hand of a mother or father, a son or a daughter, a a friend or a family member. And in that moment, you will pray earnestly, God, heal my loved one. And God welcomes and encourages our prayer, believing that he hears that prayer and that he answers that prayer. But we also need to be reminded that at times he does not answer our prayers in an earthly way. Even the Apostle Paul said three times, Lord, take this thorn of flesh from me. And three times, at least what we have from Scripture, God said, not now, not now, not now. Do you think it's because the Apostle Paul just didn't have enough faith? Do you think it's because the Apostle Paul, if he just mustered enough faith up, then God would be forced to guarantee that he would heal him on an earthly basis? And the answer is no. For the Christian, God does raise up his children from every sickness. You can be guaranteed he will raise you up, child of God, from every diagnosis. But sometimes that's here on earth. All the time it will be in eternity. How? Why? He answers those prayers in different ways. I don't No, but in the mystery of his sovereign will, I trust that he is good. You need to understand, we need to be reminded that all earthly healing, it is temporary. All earthly healing is temporary. We all are in need of a permanent healing that only he can provide. We are all in need of the healing of the greatest disease that we will face, and that is the disease of sin. And we need the saving work of our great physician as we trust him to forgive us of our sins and to secure your eternal destination. Do you know, child of God, that your destination is definite? And a part of the definite 
ness of your heavenly destination is this truth. That when you get to heaven, your disease is eternally transformed into doxology. That when you get to your final destination, all of our earthly pains are transformed into eternal praises. There is a place that we have before us. It is a place that he has made for us who trust him as our Savior and Lord. And it is a place of no more sickness. It is a place of no more scars. It is a place of no more midnight phone conversations that take your breath away with the surprise and shock of the horrendous news. It is a place where every tear is going to be wiped from your cheek by the nail-scarred hands of our Savior and Lord. This definition, this destination is secure. It is definite. Have you ever trusted the great physician for the healing that only he can provide, the healing of our sinful predicament. I I remember the, the first time that I had one of my children fly with me. We were flying to our final destination of Chicago. We had to start in Jackson, Mississippi, and to get to Chicago from Jackson, Mississippi, you have a layover in Atlanta. We talked about it. We landed in Atlanta. It's not quite as quick of a flight from Birmingham to Atlanta as, as, as Jackson to, to Atlanta is a little bit further, but it's pretty quick. We landed. He looked around and he said, boy, I didn't realize Chicago was so close. <laughs> and I said to him, one of the things you need to learn in life Anywhere you go, you got to go through Atlanta here. So we got we got we got a layover in Atlanta. Don't get too comfortable because this isn't our final destination. There, there are many of us that need to be reminded that our final destination isn't the layover. That there is a place that He has for us where all of our pains are once and forevermore transformed into praises. And so remember this morning, child of God, that your present situation is not your final destination. The best, child of God, is always yet to come. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, a word that gives us hope in the midst of Sickness, diagnosis, difficulties, challenges. Your word tells us that you walk with us. And I pray for that person that is struggling with the question marks of physical wellness. I pray for that person who is longing for clarity for a loved one or for a coworker. I pray that you as our great physician will encourage us to pray, trusting you, knowing that you are good, whatever your plan may be. May we come to you in the midst of all of our ailments, in the midst of all of our sicknesses, in the midst of our emotional and maybe even physical pain that we experience. And may we know that you provide a peace that passes all understanding. May we look to you, our great physician, for the healing of our spiritual diagnosis. It's in your name we pray. Amen.